Jenny and I lived in Texas for the first several years of our marriage, and when you live in Texas, you can't help but pick up a good bit of Texas history. Texans really love their history, and it's easy to understand why. Uh, One of the most colorful figures in Texas history is Sam Houston. Uh, Houston had been a major figure in the Texas Revolution that led to Texas independence in 1836. Uh, He was also the governor of Texas. He was one of Texas's first senators. Uh, Of course, he's got his name on many things, including the largest city in the state of Texas. There is a 67-foot high statue to Sam Houston in Huntsville, Texas. Uh, But Houston was also known for living a very dissolute life. Uh, He was married three times, one of which only lasted 11 weeks. He was known for his heavy drinking and gambling. Uh, But his third wife, who happened to be from Marion, Alabama, uh, convinced him to give up his drinking and start attending church. And for 14 years, she prayed for his conversion. And finally, at a revival event in the town of Independence, Texas, in November of 1854, Sam Houston put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he knew he needed to be baptized, and so after the service, the Reverend Rufus C. Burleson, who was also the president of Baylor University, uh, went down to Rocky Creek and baptized Sam Houston. As they were walking up from the river together after the baptism, the pastor said to Sam Houston, Well, Sam, all your sins have been washed away. To which Houston replied, Then God helped the fish, because he knew he had been a great sinner. That's not just a great Texas story, that's actually a great baptism story. Uh, Sam Houston was certainly no great theologian, not by any stretch, but he knew that God had done something great for him in his baptism. And you know, it's interesting, that is really the, the clear and consistent teaching of scripture that God acts in baptism to do something great for us. Baptism is the gospel in watery form. Uh, Baptism is the gospel in water. Now that doesn't mean baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation. God can save someone without baptism if he pleases to do so. We could certainly think up some extraordinary situation where that might happen. But ordinarily, baptism and salvation go together just like the church and salvation go together. The church fathers had a saying, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And they understood our mother, the church, gives birth to us in the waters A baptism. Our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, says outside of the church, there is no ordinary, note that word ordinary, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. But how do you enter the church? Well, our confession also says that we are admitted into the church, into the visible church, which is the kingdom, household, and family of God, through the waters of baptism. So no, baptism's not absolutely essential for salvation, but it is ordinarily part of the way God saves us. Nor should this be understood to mean that baptism is some kind of mechanical thing we do to get God's blessings, like baptism is punching the button on the vending machine to get your prize. Uh, Maybe you saw the story in the last couple weeks about a Roman Catholic priest who used the wrong baptismal formula. All these years he was saying, we baptize you instead of 
I baptize you. And so the Roman Catholic Church has declared thousands of baptisms uh, that he performed over the years to be invalid. And it seems in Roman Catholic theology, that means the salvation of those people has been put in jeopardy because the priest used the wrong formula. Uh, we don't hold to, to that kind of view of baptism. You're not going to, to lose your salvation or have your salvation jeopardized because of a technicality. I would say getting the form of baptism right is crucial, but it's not crucial in that way. See, there's great power in baptism, but the power of baptism is not found in the water or in the virtue or skill of the one who performs the baptism. In fact, it's so important to understand baptism is not really a human work at all. Baptism is a divine work, a divine gift. That's really the key thing to see. Maybe the best way to think of baptism is with an analogy. What happens in baptism is analogous to what happens in a wedding. A baptismal ceremony and a wedding ceremony have a lot in common. There is a human officiant involved in both, but it's God who is acting. And just as a wedding unites a man and a woman together and makes them one, so baptism unites the one baptized to Christ and makes them one. Think about this. Have you ever gone to a wedding and then left wondering if they were really married? Wondering if they're really now husband and wife? No, of course not. You know that they are husband and wife. There's no question God has joined them Together, That was the whole point of the ceremony. Something happened here. God acted. They woke up this morning as a single man and a single woman. They passed through the ceremony, and now they have been united as husband and wife. You don't have to doubt that. You don't have to question that. Maybe you've left a wedding wondering whether or not they would stay married, because sadly, sometimes the marriage covenant is broken. But there's no question about their status, how their status has Changed A wedding ceremony changes the status of the bride and the groom. Through the ceremony, God creates a marriage. God creates a new husband and wife. The bride and groom now have new titles and names, new privileges and obligations. Well, again, baptism is a kind of wedding ceremony. Baptism saves a person in the same way a wedding marries a person. Baptism is the start of that person's covenantal union with Christ. That doesn't automatically guarantee final salvation any more than a wedding ceremony guarantees that the couple will live happily ever after. There are things that have to happen after the baptism or after the wedding ceremony. But Romans chapter 6 says that in baptism we have been united to Christ. We have been baptized into Christ Jesus, united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. You might say baptism marries us to Christ. In baptism, we are joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. We're given a new name, new privileges, new obligations. And of course, we could go on to say that that marital covenant we've entered into in baptism is renewed at the table. Uh, that the, the, covenant, the, the covenant is renewed every time we come to the Lord's Supper. That's how we renew our covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think if you had to pick out just one passage uh, to focus on to understand baptism, I think the most critical baptism passage in the whole Bible is the one we read from Acts chapter 2. You really could say everything that we need to know about baptism is right there in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Sure, there are other passages in the New Testament that fill in our understanding of baptism, and I'm going to point you to some of those this morning. But in Acts chapter 2, 
Luke's record of Peter's preaching and the baptisms that take place there, that really gives us the gist of what baptism is all about. These verses in Acts 2 help us to understand what happens in baptism, what baptism means, what it affects, who should be baptized. And again, what we will see here is that baptism is God's promise in liquid form. Baptism is the gospel in water. We have an audible gospel as the word is preached to us. We have an edible gospel at the table with the bread and the wine. And we have a watery gospel in baptism. So there are three questions I want to answer as we go through this today. Three questions. What happens in baptism? What happens when someone is baptized? Who sh- how should people be baptized? And who should be baptized? Those three things. What happens when someone is baptized? How should they be baptized? And who should be baptized? Let's start with what happens in baptism. Look at Peter's language. Peter is preaching the gospel to these people gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Many of these people had been in Jerusalem uh, just 50 days earlier for the Feast of Passover. And no doubt many of them were part of the crowd that shouted at Jesus' trial, crucify him. But now Peter is announcing that Jesus who was crucified has been resurrected and exalted. That same Jesus who was crucified is now reigning over all things in fulfillment of God's promises. He is the Messiah, the Lord and Savior of the world. And as Peter demonstrates this from the irrefutable facts and from Scripture, Peter's preaching convicts them. They are cut to the heart, and so they cry out, what shall we do? The preaching has cut them to the heart. What should they do in response? Peter answers and says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter says to repent. What do you do when you hear the gospel preached? You are to repent. That means turning from sin and self in order to trust in Christ. That word repent in scripture describes a change in allegiance, a transfer of your loyalty. To repent means changing your loyalty from whatever gods you were serving before and now being loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, being faithful to him. And then Peter says, let each one of you be baptized. Why? Why baptism? What will happen when the repentant are baptized? Well, Peter says two things happen in baptism. Baptism, he says, is for the remission or forgiveness of your sins. And he says through baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit will be given. So there is a twofold benefit given in baptism, forgiveness and the Spirit. Okay, understand this. Since the fall of Adam... Mankind has had two basic problems. We are guilty and corrupt. Legally, we are guilty before God, and so all we can expect is God's condemnation when we step into his law court. We are guilty. And experientially, we are corrupt. We are bound in sin. We are enslaved to sin. We are dead in sin. And so here, baptism, in the context of preaching the gospel, baptism is God's instrument to deal with those two problems. The guilt problem is solved by forgiveness. When your sins are forgiven, you are no longer guilty. You are declared 
righteous. And the corruption problem is solved by the Holy Spirit who frees us from bondage to sin, who raises us up to new life, who brings us into the new creation of Christ's kingdom. Peter makes it clear this is all of grace. Because Christ died for sinners and rose again from the dead, these things are true. These things can be given to you. This is all grace. Uh, Peter says repent in scripture because repentance is a shifting of allegiance. It is inseparable from faith. You can't have repentance without faith. Repentance is turning from idols. Faith is turning towards Christ. They go together. You can't start turning from your idols without turning towards Christ. Faith and repentance go together. They are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Note here that when Peter is describing the response they should make to his preaching of the gospel, repentance is the human action. When he says repent, that is an active verb. It is something we do, something we do in response to the gospel. But then when Peter goes on to describe baptism, he speaks passively. He says, let each one of you be baptized. In other words, Baptism will be the action of another. It's not something you do, it's done to you. You are not active in your baptism, you are passive. You are not giving God anything in your baptism, you are receiving from him. Baptism is a gift given to you, and all you can do is receive what is offered. And Peter is saying here, what is offered in the waters of baptism is the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now here we have a real problem. I think we have a real problem in the modern American church. We're a real anomaly in church history. We have certain theological prejudices. And we are prone to read our own theological prejudices into a passage like this. And so, for example, if we are convinced that baptism must only be a symbol and cannot be an instrument of God's grace, it must only be a symbol, then we might be tempted to mentally twist around Peter's words in this kind of way. We might be tempted to read the passage this way. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized as a symbol that this has happened. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. It's baptism that is for forgiveness. So sandwich between repentance and forgiveness is baptism. Between the repentance and the forgiveness is baptism. See, when the repentant are baptized, what is Peter saying? When the repentant are baptized, they receive remission and new life. Baptism is effective in these ways precisely because baptism is no mere symbol. Christ is present in baptism to give himself to us. The gift of baptism is ultimately the gift of Christ himself. That's Romans 6. You're baptized into Christ. In baptism, you're joined to Christ. You're united to Christ. All of these gifts are found in Christ. They're found in Christ alone. But how does Christ give his gifts to us? Well, through these means. Through preaching, through baptism, at the table. This is how Christ gives himself to us. Think about it this way in terms of baptism. And I, there's, there's some problems with this illustration, so don't press this too far. I, I would want to qualify this in various ways I won't go into here, but I still think this can be helpful. Let's just suppose you're dying. You've got a fatal disease, but there is a doctor who can cure you. He has the power to cure you. He has promised to cure, cure, cure you. He has the power to heal. 
And he has created a medicine. He, he, has, he, has, he has imparted his healing power to this medicine that will bring healing to you. And he's going to cure you of your fatal disease free of charge. He'll give you this medicine and then give you this medicine, give you his healing powers free of charge. Now, if you don't trust the doctor, obviously you're not going to be interested. You're not going to go to him. You're not going to take his medicine. You're not going to swallow that pill. But suppose you do trust the doctor and you do receive his medicine. You do get well. And we could then ask the question, how were you saved? Well, ultimately, we'd have to say the doctor saved you. He's the one who accomplished your salvation. But we could also, in a lesser way, say the medicine saved you. Or we could even say your faith saved you. Now what's interesting is scripture speaks in all of those ways. Scripture speaks in salvation, of, of salvation in all of those terms. Obviously scripture presents Christ to us as the savior. Again, he's the great physician. He's the great healer. Whatever healing, whatever salvation we receive will come from Christ. But 1 Peter 3 says baptism now saves you. In Luke chapter 7, uh, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Jesus saved you. Your baptism saves you. Your faith saves you. All of these save you, but in different ways. All of these are true, but in different ways. The point is this. Jesus is the Savior, but he saves us through means. And the means through which he saves us include baptism. Salvation is received by faith alone, but how is that salvation given to us? How does Jesus give his gifts to us? Well, in part through baptism. Jesus, in that illustration I gave, obviously Jesus is the Savior, he's the doctor. Baptism is the healing gift. Baptism is the medicine. And it's all received by faith. It's because you trust the doctor that you receive his medicine. And you're healed, you're saved from your disease. In a way, I think that's how we can understand this. Again, I said this before, Connor's baptism this morning, I'll say it again. Everywhere the New Testament speaks of baptism, it describes God as affecting something through our baptism. Acts chapter 2 is not alone in this. I mentioned Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ Jesus. Another one of my favorite examples, and I'll dwell on this one a little bit because it's, it's, a, it's very helpful and it's a good compliment to Acts chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses the exodus, the Red Sea crossing, as a model for understanding baptism. Paul says the exodus, the Red Sea crossing, can help us understand what baptism. So Paul explains baptism going back to that Red Sea crossing, the exodus. Uh, because the Red Sea crossing is a type or a foreshadowing of new covenant baptism. And so there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes in verses 1 and 2, All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And then he goes on in verse 6, he says these things are types for us. Again, they are a model for us to learn from. Just as the Israelites had their baptism, so we have ours. And we can learn what our baptism means by looking back to their baptism. Well, the thing is, for the Israelites, their baptism, that Red Sea crossing baptism was their definitive deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and then they were baptized in the Red Sea. And that was 
their freedom. Before their baptism, they were slaves to Pharaoh. After their baptism, they've been set free. They were put in a different place after their baptism. They're not in Egypt anymore. Now, clearly, this baptism was not a work the Israelites did themselves. This is why I say baptism is the gospel. Only God could have done this work. They did not have the power, obviously, to part the Red Sea or to destroy Pharaoh and his chariots. They didn't have the power to set themselves free from Pharaoh's dominion, from Pharaoh's rule. God did this, and God did it through a baptism. The Red Sea crossing was nothing less than a miracle. And that is a paradigm for understanding your baptism. Can you consider your baptism to be a miracle of God's grace, a miracle of God's delivering power? See, this is what Paul wants us to understand. Your baptism is a supernatural, divine, miraculous act of God. Every bit as much as the Red Sea crossing. Through your baptism, God has delivered you from bondage. He has set you free from the tyranny and dominion of the greater Pharaoh, Satan himself. There's a couple other things to note about that passage, and here we can move into how baptism should be administered. That passage, like the Acts 2 passage, helps us to understand how baptism should be administered, how it is best Administered. So let's talk about that for just a minute. How should baptism be applied? This is not as important as the other things I'll say this morning, but it's a question that comes up, so I want to address it. Sometimes people wonder why Presbyterians and other branches of the church pour or sprinkle the water in baptism instead of immersing someone in the water. And it is sometimes argued that the word baptism means immersion. And it's as simple as that. The word baptism means immersion, so that's how we ought to baptize. But actually, the word baptism does not mean immersion. To baptize does not mean to immerse. It can mean that. That can be a form of baptism. And I think baptisms performed by immersion are certainly valid. There's no need to go seek a rebaptism. But that's not what the word means in the scripture. The book of Hebrews, just to give you one example of this, the book of Hebrews talks about various old covenant washings, and those washings are actually referred to as baptisms. There were various types of baptisms under the law. And if you go back and read about those baptisms, those washings under the law in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Torah, you will see that none of those washings were ever performed by immersion. All of those various old covenant baptisms, whether uh, being washed after you touched a dead body or if your leprosy has gone away and now you're being cleansed or when a priest is ordained, all of those baptisms, all of those old covenant washings are performed by some kind of sprinkling or pouring. None of them are performed by immersion. In Luke chapter 11, the Pharisees are scandalized that Jesus does not baptize himself. Your translation probably says wash himself, but it's a word there related to uh, baptism, that Jesus does not baptize himself before dinner because that was the Pharisees' custom. Well, it's not that Jesus should have gone and immersed himself in a pool before coming in to eat. That's not what they meant by the word baptism. That's not the, what's in view there. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, it mentions, again, the traditions of the Pharisees, which included baptizing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They had kind of these dining couches or tables. Well, clearly those dining couches were not being dunked in water. 
And the kind of washing they were given, the kind of ceremonial ritual washing they were given is described as a baptism. It's a baptism, but it's not by immersion. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul calls the Red Sea crossing a baptism for the Israelites. The Israelites are the one baptized. The Egyptians are the ones who got immersed. Think about what this means. The Egyptians who got immersed are not baptized, and the Israelites who are not immersed are baptized. And you might ask, well, why did Paul think that the Red Sea crossing was a baptism? Well, the Israelites did get wet, but not with water from below, rather with water from above. And that's the key distinction. In Psalm 77, we have a poetic retelling of the Red Sea crossing. And in verse 17 of Psalm 77, the psalmist tells us the cloud, that is the glory cloud that led them through the sea, the cloud poured out water on them. For Paul, the Red Sea crossing was a baptism because water poured out from above, from the glory cloud on the people. And it's really the same in Acts chapter 2. I said Acts chapter 2 has got everything you need to know about baptism. It really does. In Acts chapter 2, the whole church is baptized with the Spirit. And how does the Spirit come upon them? Well, it says earlier in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit was poured out upon them. Peter in his sermon says, the Spirit has been poured out. It's a baptism by pouring. Acts chapter 2 also tells us there were several thousand that were baptized that day. Well, there was no river or lake in Jerusalem there to immerse thousands of people. That could not have been the form of their baptism. Jesus had promised his disciples, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. How is that promise of baptism with the Spirit fulfilled? By pouring out the Spirit from heaven on the disciples. So we Presbyterians pour or sprinkle the water in baptism, not because we're trying to save money on the water bill, though Presbyterians do like to do that kind of thing. Uh, But that's not the reason. We do it because it's biblical. Immersions, again, are certainly valid, but sprinkling and pouring are especially fitting. That's the teacher of the scriptures themselves. But now let's, let's consider another aspect of this. Let's ask who should receive this baptism. Who should be baptized? Specifically, should babies be baptized? Well, again, go back to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll get to Acts 2 in a minute. But 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, all passed through the sea. All were baptized. Of course, he goes on to say, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. The whole people of Israel, the whole family of Israel, the whole nation of Israel, which is several hundred thousand people at this point, the whole nation received this baptism. The whole nation shared in this baptism. Now, in a nation of several hundred thousand people, you think there are any really young children or any little babies in that group? Well, yes, of course there were. So here in 1 Corinthians 10, you have irrefutable proof of infant baptism. You have an explicit example of infant baptism in the New Testament. Sometimes you hear people say that, well, there's no explicit example of, of, of an infant being baptized. Yes, there is. Right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just put in the form of a syllogism for you. Israel's Red Sea crossing was a baptism. Children crossed the Red Sea. Therefore, children were baptized. And of course, children also partook of the spiritual food and drank as they were able. So uh, you can throw that in there as well. That's not this morning's sermon, but I'll just note that. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is just as clear. In verse 39, he says, The promise is to you and to your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, 
everyone within earshot of Peter on that day of Pentecost, everyone in Peter's audience would have known exactly what he was talking about when he speaks of the promise. The promise! Every Israelite would have known this. Everyone there gathered for the Feast of Pentecost would have known. What is the promise? It's the promise of salvation. It's the promise of the covenant. It's the promise God made to Abraham. That's the promise. The promise is the word God spoke to Abraham because that became the foundation of Israel's very existence and the basis of Israel's mission. That promise was Israel's whole reason for existing. And that promise is is spoken in many places, but it's really crystallized in Genesis 17, verse 7, where God says to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be a God to you and to your children. That's the promise. That's the promise Peter has in view. And the sign of that covenant promise was circumcision, a, 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 a bloody cutting on the males. And all that's tied into the promise of the coming Messiah and how the Messiah cannot be produced in the strength of, uh, of the flesh. There's a whole theology of circumcision there that I won't go into. But that sign of circumcision was given to Jewish infants on the eighth day. So from their infancy, God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. That begins, that relationship with God begins in infancy. When Peter is preaching to the people, Those who hear him are cut to the heart. When you read in the scripture about cutting, what do you think of? Well, of course, circumcision. Their hearts are cut. Their hearts are being circumcised, which of course is what physical circumcision pointed to and demanded. But Peter is now announcing a new covenant, the fulfillment of all the old covenant administrations. Now the new covenant has arrived. Now that the Messiah has come and the Spirit has been poured out, that new covenant the prophets promised is here. And so a new covenant needs a new sign. And the sign of this new covenant is obviously baptism. Baptism has replaced circumcision. Paul says that explicitly in Colossians chapter 2. He says you don't need to be circumcised because you're baptized. Jesus, the ultimate circumcision, took place on the cross. And when you're united to Christ in baptism, you share in his circumcision. That's the only circumcision you need. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant people of God. But then we can ask, well, who is baptism for? Circumcision was for Abraham and his children and applied in their infancy. What about this new covenant sign of baptism? Who is to receive this sign? In other words, the question is, has the basic structure of the covenant changed? Is the covenant now just for individuals? I'll be a God to you and nobody connected with you. Or is the promise still, I will be a God to you and to your children? Does the covenant include the same people as before? Well, verse 38 is Peter's answer to that question. The scope of the covenant has not shrunk, it has expanded. The new covenant is not less gracious, which would be the case if children were now excluded. It's actually more gracious, even more inclusive. The scope of the covenant has not been diminished. It has been expanded. And so Peter echoes the words of God in Genesis 17. He says the promise is to you and to your children. That is exactly what God said to Abraham. I will be a God to you and to your children. My promise is to you and to your children. 
The reality is God's covenants have always included children. God has always worked with households, not just with individuals. Peter is saying children are still included in the covenant. This promise, this promise of the new covenant, this promise of baptism is to you and to your children. Which means the children of Christians should be baptized. The children of Christians are included in the new covenant just as surely as Abraham's children were included in his covenant. Abraham did not have to wonder, are my children Israelites or not? They are. They are branches on the covenant tree. Christian parents do not need to wonder, does God love my children? Do my children belong to God? Are my children Christians? Yes, they are. Not by nature, but by grace. By virtue of God's promise, your children are Christian children. Every bit as much as Abraham's children were Israelite children. And again, so just as Abraham's children received the sign of that covenant, the sign of that promise, so Christian children must receive the sign of this new covenant, the sign of the promise. I would say here in Acts 2, Peter is giving believers nothing less than a command to baptize their children. The promise is to our children. It is for our children. Therefore, they must have the sign of that promise. In this passage, Peter is really instituting the new covenant, the new covenant sign of baptism. And he he says it is to and for the same group as the Abrahamic covenant. It is to believers and their children. And this is why, as you work your way through the rest of the book of Acts, there are so many household baptisms. It's because God still works with households just like he did in the old covenant. You see whole households getting baptized. God makes promises to households. He claims households. And this is all based on that Abrahamic promise where God says, I will be a God to you and to your household, a God to you and to your children. But then Peter does one-up the Abrahamic promise. This was actually promised to Abraham, but uh, it it had not come to fulfillment in any kind of uh, huge way yet. Peter goes on, he goes one step further, he adds, not just as the promise to us and to our children, it is also to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Who are those who are far off? Well, they are the Gentiles. That is often how the prophets refer to the Gentile nations. They are those who are far off. In Ephesians 2.13, Paul, speaking of the Gentiles being brought in, he says, you Gentiles who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled even as it's being transformed. Circumcision has given way to baptism. We can't have a bloody sign in the new covenant anymore because the final bloody sacrifice has been made. The covenant still includes our children, But now God is also making good on his promise to include the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations will flow in to be a part of Abraham's family, which was also promised in the book of Genesis. I've given you Genesis 17. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. There God tells Abraham, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you. And through you, through your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. I will bless those who are far off. 
That's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying God's going to call many who are far off, the Gentile nations, and they will come and they will share in the blessings promised to Abraham, the blessings of baptism, forgiveness of sins, and new life through the Holy Spirit. In other words, nations are going to be baptized. Not just individuals, not even just families, but nations will be baptized. And of course, what does this call to mind? The Great Commission. The Great Commission of Matthew 28, where Jesus commands us to go and baptize the nations, making the nations Christ's disciples, and then teaching them everything he has commanded. And so the Old Testament prophets had promised this, and now Jesus is saying, it's time for this to come to fulfillment. The Old Testament prophets said that in the new covenant age, the nations would be baptized, starting with Israel, but flowing out from that, the nations we baptize. Ezekiel 36 promises that the Messiah will sprinkle the nation of Israel to make them clean. But then Isaiah 52 verse 15 says the Messiah will sprinkle many nations to bring cleansing. He will baptize many nations, sprinkling many nations with his blood and with his spirit. In fact, that passage in Isaiah 52, go read Acts chapter 8. That is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from in Acts chapter 8 when Philip comes alongside him to explain the gospel more fully to him. And then he asks Philip, what hinders me from being baptized? Well, he's just read about how the Messiah will sprinkle many nations when he comes. And here you have this Ethiopian saying, well, why shouldn't I be sprinkled too? He's going to baptize many nations. Why shouldn't I be baptized? I believe Jesus is Messiah. Why shouldn't I receive his sprinkling, his baptism, his cleansing and renewal? See, the Great Commission commands us to fulfill this prophecy, to sprinkle many nations, to disciple the nations. Now, of course, we don't just go around randomly baptizing anyone and everyone. We baptize those who repent when the gospel is preached. We baptize their children on the basis of God's covenant promise. We won't just baptize anyone's children either. That's important to understand. That's why we have parents take vows before their children are baptized. Those vows aren't necessary, per se, but they're helpful because they show here are parents who are claiming these covenant promises for their children and who are promising to disciple their kids accordingly. That's why we're baptizing this child. That's why this child belongs. That's why we call this child a covenant child, a Christian child. Everything scripture tells us about the children of God's people indicates they are believers and should be counted and treated as believers until and unless they fall away and break covenant with God. Our baptized children are members of the church in the exact same way as adults. Adults professing Christ are members of the church. There's no two-tiered membership. We all share in the same status in the body of Christ. We may be at different levels of maturity, obviously, but we all share in the same status as members of the church. You see this again and again and again in Scripture. Read the Psalms. Psalm 22 describes David trusting in God even as a nursing infant. He says, you were my God from the womb. From the moment of my conception, that covenant promise was true of me. Read it in the Psalms. Read it in the prophets. Isaiah 59, God promises, this is my covenant with Israel. My spirit is upon you and I put my words in your mouth and the mouths of your children. 
Or Isaiah 65, 23. You do not bear children. God speaking to his people. He says, you do not bear children for trouble, for they shall be blessed by the Lord. You're not having kids just to populate hell. You're having kids to grow the kingdom. They'll be blessed by the Lord. That's the prophets. Read the Gospels. Matthew chapter 19. Little children are brought to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus. And he overrides the objections of his disciples. He takes those little children in his arms and blesses them. Children being held by God himself in human flesh. God bouncing little children on his knee. God holding little children in his arms. That's the picture you have in Matthew 19. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, for to such as these little children belongs the kingdom. The kingdom is there. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist pastor, I love him, but he got this wrong. Spurgeon said, well, see, we should bring our children to Jesus and not to the baptismal font. But that misses the whole point of what the baptismal font is. Taking your children to the baptismal font is bringing them to Jesus for a blessing. It's one of the very tangible ways that Jesus blesses our little ones. Indeed, you keep reading there, Jesus has no hesitation in speaking of the faith of little children. Jesus does not say little children have to become like big grown-ups in order to enter the kingdom. No, he says we adults have to become like little children if we want to enter the kingdom. It's in the Gospels. Read the epistles. In Ephesians, children in the congregation are addressed. They are part of the church part of the assembly of holy ones, the gathering of the saints that Paul writes this letter to, Paul addresses the children as a subgroup of the church. They're part of the body and bride of Christ who are receiving this letter. And in Ephesians 6, Paul tells children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then he tells fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so the father's instruction and the children's obedience are both in the Lord. Union with Christ encircles, it it surrounds the whole father-child relationship. The father's teaching is in the Lord. The children's obedience is in the Lord. That makes no sense if these are unbaptized children who are supposed to be viewed as pagans. It only makes sense if the children of God's people are part of God's people as well. Now, there's a lot of different things we could say about this. But I just want you to understand this. And this is for you kids. You understand this. You kids growing up in this church, in in a Christian family, you need to be grateful for what God has given to you. And you parents need to understand the grace God has given to you as well and the responsibilities God has given to you. But in all of this, we need to see the gospel. Baptism is the gospel in watery form. God is a God to us and to our children. God didn't have to do it this way, but God did. God loves us, and God has lavished that same love on our children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.